Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... We have Dr. Wes Pegden, and he is an associate professor of mathematics at Carnegie Mellon University. He is a self-described rigorous thinker when it comes to SARS-CoV-2, and he is going to talk through his thoughts on SARS-CoV-2 in a very, very unique and clever way, and that's why I really enjoy talking to him. But first, this is an oncology podcast, and we have not forgotten our roots, and I'm back with an analysis of Keynote 177, which came out on December 3rd, 2020. You won't want to miss this discussion. It is going to be super interesting. PFS, waterfall plots, missing bars. You don't want to miss this. Stay tuned. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Keynote 177, Pembrolizumab and Microsatellite Instability High Advanced Colorectal Cancer. This is... An interesting study. This is, of course, a randomized control trial against pembrolizumab and MSI high or DDMMR tumors versus chemotherapy. And chemotherapy could be a few options. It could be full fox, full fox bev, full fox cetux, full theory, full theory bev, or full theory cetux. So pretty, pretty standard in that sense. Um, I think one of the things that jumped out at me was about a quarter of people were BRAF V600 mutants, um, about a quarter were KRAS and NRAS mutants. Um, and, uh, this was, uh, you know, de novo metastatic disease, uh, two thirds were right-sided, one third was left-sided. Um, they were allowed to have metastasectomy, uh, median age is 63. Uh, ECOG is generally good as you would expect. Um, what else? No, that's it. And then the primary endpoint of course is co-primary endpoints, PFS and OS. Um, from looking at the alpha, it looked like very little had been spread to the PFS, so probably more of the alpha was meant for OS. So probably OS is really the primary endpoint, um, but of course when they get a PFS and it was a co-primary endpoint, you got to celebrate that. And in fact, they get the PFS. They get a hazard ratio of 0.6, um, and they get a PFS benefit. Um, but you got to look at these curves. Um, the way the curves look is there is a precipitous drop in the pembrolizumab curve right out of the gates. Pembrolizumab, there's a fraction of people where it ain't doing much, and we're going to talk more about that. Chemo does better right out of the gates. It has an initial PFS advantage, but of course, by six months or so, the curves cross, and then chemo, you know, they eventually all progress, or it looks like nearly everybody progresses. They will eventually all progress. Pembro, it looks like maybe about there's some 40%, maybe it'll drop to 35% with more follow-up but some 40% plateau in the PFS curve, even out in, at 36 months. Um, so, so the Pembro wins based on the tail. The tail is what pulls it up. Now, the authors make a good point, quote, because the proportional hazards assumption was violated, uh, that the, that the, that the hazard ratio would be proportional across the curve, an analysis of restricted mean survival time was performed. And the estimated restricted mean survival time for PFS after 24 months was 13.7 months in the Pembro group versus 10.8 months in the chemo group. And that is probably a fairer 
a fairer articulation of the PFS benefit, that 10 to 13 month difference. So it is clear there's a fraction of people who have uh, a good response to pembrolizumab who happen to have MSI high tumors. Um, And I guess that shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us who've been practicing because we have had um, the use of checkpoint inhibitors in subsequent lines of therapy for MSI high. So um, that's it. Um, And uh, there was one line in the methods that caught my interest. It was called um, this line. Deaths that occurred without disease progression were included as events in the evaluation of progression-free survival. I don't know why they say that line in the study because that is literally the definition of progression-free survival. Progression-free survival, of course, is a time-to-event composite endpoint. That means it's the time until one of four things happen. Those four things are, one, the patient dies prior to progressing, which is what they're saying they're including in the PFS. They don't need to say that because that's what PFS is. Two, there are new lesions on the scans that didn't exist before. Three, you have 20% tumor growth from a tumor that didn't shrink, so slow, steady tumor growth. And four, you have 20% tumor growth from the nadir for a tumor that shrunk, uh, including tumors that have response if they have 30% or more tumor shrinkage. So those are the really the four criteria of a, of a PFS endpoint. You could argue that the third and fourth are really the same. It's 20 percent growth from nadir so it's really a time to one of three events um so i'm not sure why they say that um the next thing they say 11 patients randomly assigned to the chemotherapy group did not begin trial treatment hmm why did that happen because they're disappointed in what they got is my guess is my guess and in fact in the paper by kate rosen emerson chen and i that appears in the european journal of cancer where we look at censoring across many randomized trials we do find a bias in favor of more censoring on control arm regimens early in kaplan meyer curves which i think represents the disappointment that comes when you get assigned to the treatment that you know you didn't really want because you want the experimental treatment which is why you were going on the study because we hype our drugs so much. It does not necessarily because it's better, because we hype our drugs. Okay. Um, another thing I note, and this is one of the two cruxes of the issue, one of the two cruxes of the issue, the OS. So if you were assigned to chemotherapy, you ought to get chemotherapy, and then when you progress, you ought to get pembrolizumab. I mean, I think that is the standard of care at the time of this study. It's certainly the standard of care from everybody I've ever seen with MSI high tumors. Doctors are eager, keen and eager to get him to the pembrolizumab. In fact, they're so keen and eager, they might even be a little trigger happy to call progression. So that's my clinical experience as the practice. And so I think it should be chemo to pembro or pembro to chemo in the fraction of people for whom uh, they don't have a durable response to pembro. And the real question is, which has the better OS? I think that's the philosophically the better question. Which has the better PFS when you don't have proportional hazards? I don't think that's a really an interesting question. So which has better OS? What's the best sequence? This is a sequence trial. It's not a trial of fundamental efficacy. We already have the approval of, and we already utilize, and nobody has ever questioned the utilization of pembrolizumab or nivolumab or nevoipi in MSI high tumors. That's already granted. The question is, when do you give it? You give it first or you give it second? That's the question. So I looked at this study and I noticed that they write the following. The Independent Data Monitoring Committee recommended that the trial continue without changes to the final analysis for assessment of overall survival until 190 overall deaths have occurred or until at least 12 months after the interim analysis. Crossover will be a factor in the assessment of overall survival. At the time of data cutoff, 56 out of 154 patients randomly assigned to chemotherapy crossed over to Pembro, that's a third, and an additional 35 patients in chemo group received anti-PD-1 or anti-PDL-1 therapies outside the trial for an effective crossover rate of 59%. Oh, that may affect the assessment of overall survival. 
Oh, oh no, oh no. Well, well, it should be part of the question you're asking, actually. You should be asking chemo then Pembro or Pembro then chemo. You can't ask chemo then dilapidated, antiquated therapies we're not providing in the U.S. That's a question that's not clinically relevant. So if you don't have crossover, you are screwing it up. And by having crossover, you're doing a good job. So you want to know is OS benefit based on this sequence, Pembro, then chemo? That's the question versus chemo, then Pembro. And that's still the relevant question. That's still the key question. I noticed some other interesting things about this study. I tweeted a slide, which nobody really wanted to fully delve into. But if you look in the supplement, there's a waterfall plot, okay? There's waterfall plots shown in the supplement of pembrolizumab and chemotherapy. Just pembro on the top, just chemo on the bottom. Now you should know pembrolizumab has a higher response rate, i.e. more people had 30% or more tumor shrinkage than chemotherapy. But chemotherapy has a higher clinical benefit rate, which is stable disease plus response rate. Because more people have stable disease and response with chemo than with Pembro because they have fewer stable disease because they have a bunch of people progressing rather quickly. So they show in the, in the waterfall plot, one thing you can see very clearly is the width of the waterfall plot for Pembro is less wide than the width for chemo. There's fewer columns in the Pembro than in the chemo arm. Okay, it's a one-to-one -one randomization. There should be the same number of columns. And actually, there may be even more columns. There should be more columns in the Pembro because actually more people dropped out of the chemo arm, remember? Because they were, I'm hypothesizing, they were disappointed with the fact they were assigned to chemotherapy. And yet there are more columns in the waterfall plot with chemo than Pembro. That's interesting. It should be the other way around, shouldn't it? So what I did was I cropped the picture and then I right justified everything. You see, they've left justified everything. You got to look at this picture because it'll make full sense to you. When you left, left justify everything, you have all the people whose tumors grew right away on the left and the people who have deep response on the right. And, and that tipping point, that point where the bars go from above the baseline to below the baseline, that's on the left in Pembro and it's on the left in chemo. And the difference between those two tipping points is uh, very little. They're close together because you've left justified. When I write justify, when I put all the CRs, line those up together, then you see the tipping point is actually much further apart. That chemotherapy has more people with tumor shrinkage, maybe not resist 1.1 response, but it has more people with tumor shrinkage than Pembro. Way more people than Pembro. And Pembro is missing some columns. It's missing some columns. And do you think it's missing columns on the CR side? I think it's missing columns on the bad side. Because columns are missing from a waterfall plot if you cannot assess the person for follow-up. And I worry that happened to a lot of those people who progressed rapidly in the first four or six months. They couldn't even be assessed because they've had rip-roaring progression. That's my worry. Maybe some of them even died. That's my other worry. So what's my point? Look at the PFS curve and look at the waterfall plot. Look at the one I've tweeted. Look at the PFS curve and look at the waterfall plot. Look at the PFS curve and look at the waterfall plot. The PFS curve is telling you there is a fraction of people, and it's probably as high as 40% of people, that pembrolizumab is not doing a good job. They're progressing right away. Pembrolizumab may not be better than sugar water for those people. I don't know, but it may not be better than sugar water for those people. It may not be better than placebo. The PFS in the chemo arm is initially better for the first six months. Then the fraction of people in whom pembro is better drives the curve outward. And that fraction may be 50 some percent. Pembro may be better for 50 some percent. And Pembro may lead to a durable remission in, in a third of people. 
I don't think it's 50%. I probably don't think it's 40% based on, based on where I think that curve will ultimately settle. But there was some fraction that'll be durable. Okay. There's no doubt about that. Pembro is a durable thing for people with MSI, for a fraction of people with MSI high. Pembro is also not that great for a bunch of people with MSI high. In fact, it's probably inferior to chemotherapy. Now let's look at the waterfall plot. There's more tumor shrinkage with chemotherapy. Correction. Let me put it this way. More individual people have some tumor shrinkage with chemotherapy than pembrolizumab. More individual people have tumor shrinkage with chemotherapy than pembrolizumab. There may be fewer people who meet response criteria, but more individual people have tumor shrinkage with chemotherapy than pembrolizumab. So what's my point? My point is that there is an alternative strategy than neither of these two arms that has not been interrogated that might actually be the best strategy. We could interrogate it prospectively. We probably ought to. That strategy might be you give everyone three months of full fox first. Give them the full fox. Let's not let these people progress rapidly. Maybe they're dying. Maybe they're dying or maybe they're progressing so rapidly they can't get subsequent therapy. We'll know when we finally see the OS curves, but we do know that they're missing from the waterfall plot. In other words, they're not being scored as progression. They may be progressing so rapidly the doctor didn't get the scan or initiated treatment prior to getting the scan for clinical deterioration. That wouldn't be so good. We know there's maybe 40% of people, Pembro ain't doing much. Let's give everybody a couple months of chemotherapy. Let's give him one or two months of chemotherapy. Let's give him three months, maybe. And then let's give him pembrolizumab. This is an alternative strategy that was not in either arm. A few months of chemotherapy, pembrolizumab. Um, I think it's worth testing. I mean, I do worry that this trial, uh, as a purist, it does not prove that pembro then chemo is superior to the chemo then pembro. You can't look at PFS1 for that. And you certainly can't look at it when it's not meeting proportional hazards assumptions and you have to use rank, you have to use restricted mean survival time. You, do, you can't look, I mean, that's certainly not the basis. You need to do Pembro, then chemo, or chemo, then Pembro, and then look at PFS2. I'm happy to take a PFS2. I love a PFS2, but you got to have good crossover for a PFS2. And I think 59% is good, but it's probably a little bit lower than what you ought to have had. It probably ought to be a little bit higher because you should have mandated it on the protocol. Or OS. I think OS is also a good endpoint. Given the results we do have, I think an oncologist would be, it would be reasonable for people you think have low volume disease to give Pembro first. For somebody with rip-roaring progression, I would be scared to give Pembro first. I'd probably give chemo first. I think it would be reasonable to give a couple cycles of chemo and then switch to Pembro. I don't, I don't see strong data that that strategy is disproven by this study. In fact, it's not. There's a lot of evidence that suggests it might be the most prudent strategy. I think in a future randomized trial, a cooperative group ought to do that study. If it is in fact superior to give a few cycles of chemo, we want to know that. We don't want a few people dying very quickly because you're giving them Pembro and they are destined not to be Pembro responders. They're destined not to have tumor shrinkage from Pembro, but they might have had some disease temporization with chemotherapy. You see my point? So... You know, the editorial, I think, is not what we wanted or needed. Um, it's, it's too cheerleader. I think you want to look at this in a more impartial way. There's a reason why the alpha split the way it split. They don't actually tell me the full split, but I suspect most of the alpha is piled on the OS because the alpha for this was actually quite stringent. Uh, 0.0117, which tells me probably the, 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 the resultant, you know, 0.3 something in chain, 3 and 85, um, or 3 and 83, that's, um, 0.0383 is probably piled in the OS. They have more alpha there. Um, I think OS is the relevant question. And the question is, it's a sequence question. It's not which has a better initial PFS. It's a sequence question. Um, if you can give a lot of people full fox and keep several people alive who are not going to respond to Pembro, and then when people progress, give them Pembro and still salvage the same long-term durability on the back end, that might even be a better strategy. You know, it might be a better strategy. 
So I certainly think we need a randomized trial of Pembro first versus chemo then chemo and Pembro. That's another option. Or a few cycles of chemo then Pembro. I think those are another options. Um, so I don't think this is the be all end all. And I, and I would be very reluctant to give pembrolizumab to somebody with a lot of tumor volume um, or somebody with rapid progression. I'd want to temporize it first. Um, so I, 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 I do give them credit. I think it's a well-written study, and I think the drug is actually a useful drug in this setting. I'm going to grant them that. It is not, this is not profoundly bad. This is Keynote 177 good. And I think Dr. Diaz and others have done very elegant work to show that this is a beneficial drug for people with this disease. But the question in this study is when and how do I sequence? And I worry that this gives you the illusion you know more than you do and that the good doctor must individualize the choice for the patient in front of them. And I wish the editorial had said that instead. And on that positive note, I'm going to turn to my interview with Wes Pegden. You won't want to miss this discussion. Stay tuned. So I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Wes Pegden. Dr. Pegden is an associate professor of mathematics. It's a different subject for us, mathematics, at the Carnegie Mellon University. And he is also somebody who is a participant, a, a thoughtful student of, um, a commenter on uh, SARS-CoV-2, on COVID-19. And he comes at it from a very different point of view um, that I find um, very interesting and refreshing. And, and perhaps by the end of this discussion, you will as well. Uh, Dr. Pegnan, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's uh, Yeah, I think it'll be very interesting. So, you know, there, there are many things that you have said that, um, that have caught my interest and that have actually made me say, huh, I, I hadn't thought of that uh, or I didn't think in that direction. And so I think that um, is a unique thing because you have a different set of skills, a different interest. Um, maybe for the listeners, um, just briefly, as, as much as you'd like to tell us, um, you know, um, prior to COVID-19, you, you weren't a healthcare insider. You're not somebody who follows um, medicine, medical studies closely. You're a mathematician. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm a mathematician. I work on uh, combinatorics and probability. Uh, the, the closest thing to yeah something that would be sort of publicly recognizable that I worked on before was uh, uh, analyzing political districtings for gerrymandering, right? So ah, this is, you know, yes. that comes up, uh, right? So this is something that you can apply probability to. Um, but yeah, it certainly, uh, I, I don't have a lot of work on healthcare under my belt, uh, but yeah, this is just, uh, what I'm thinking about these days among other things. And I guess like, um, well, we'll come back to math. I've got a few math questions for you at the end. Um, but I guess let's just jump in on COVID cause that's where I think, um, our, our mutual interests are at least these days. So the COVID-19 pandemic hit and of course, like everyone, yeah, I'm sure it affects you. Um, and you started reading and you started doing a lot of reading, uh, about things from masks, aerosolization, lockdown, um, uh, the impacts of COVID policies uh, on other disciplines, schools, school closure. Um, you did a lot of reading in all these domains. Um, and I guess uh, I noticed in your Twitter bio, um, and, I, and I learned it to be the case from following you, uh, that you say you're a proponent of rigorous thinking. Um, <laughs> so I guess by that you mean, um, you know, no matter what the problem is, um, you're not going to be or let yourself be um, moved by rhetoric. Um, you're really going to try to follow the data and see where the data points. Is that a fair characterization of how you take these issues on? Well, that, that's the ideal. I mean, I mean, I'm not sure any of us attain this perfectly at any time, but yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, certainly I think on Twitter, we see, on Twitter in particular, we see a lot of the opposite, right? We see people 
sort of, uh, you know, following the crowd and, uh, you know, saying what they think will uh, be perceived well. And I mean, okay, I think for a lot of what happens on social media, that's maybe fine because it's just social media. But I mean, if what we're talking about is pandemic science and what we should do. Uh, it seems like it has more weight. And so, I mean, one thing that struck me, uh, so when I first, so I, you know, opened a Twitter account, just, I think it was March of this year. I see. Um, just to, uh, you know, share an article that uh, we had written uh, well, on, uh, on coronavirus. So we wrote some articles early on, on on a few topics. And, you know, one thing that struck me uh, after, you know, being on the site a bit uh, and that I was frankly very surprised by was the clear impression that I had that a lot of science journalism works with journalists connecting to to scientists through Twitter. Yes. Right. And sort of choosing scientists to seek feedback from on this platform and judging them by what kind of following they have. And so, I mean, you know, going in, I had somehow, well, let's say coming out uh, of that experience early on, I developed a, a, a you know, a very different impression and kind of a scary impression of how much influence the platform has on the science discourse. I mean, I think it would be very easy to just say, well, you know, all this stuff that people are saying on Twitter about COVID or whatever just kind of doesn't matter. Um, but I think, frankly, unfortunately, it does matter. I think if you look at a lot of the, uh, you know, the news stories that have, uh, you know, pushed what actually happened, right, influenced important things like when, you know, whether schools were closed and, and issues like this. A, a lot of those news stories are written by journalists whose, you know, go-to source of commentators is popular people on Twitter. Um, so Ooh. that's somehow... So you, you're, you're jumping in on the deep end, and I guess I would say a couple things, because not only do I agree with you, I agree with you a lot. I think the pandemic would have been less lethal if Twitter didn't exist. So that's my one of my, no, I, th I think it's done a disservice. And I think Bari Weiss, when she resigned from the New York Times, said the ultimate editor of the New York Times is Twitter. And I think um, people, you know, that was one of her, the quotes in sort of her article. Um, there's some truth to that with SARS-CoV-2. There's this interesting feedback that comes from people tweet and they gain Twitter followings, certain messages uh, perhaps not the most nuanced and thoughtful messages, but certain messages gain a lot of traction. Reporters see those messages, internalize that. It shapes their stories and their narrative, and they qu get quotes from those people who then retweet their article with the quote of themselves in it, which gets a lot more looks for the article. I mean, I view it as a, a positive feedback loop where Twitter and the news, um, you know, it's the dog chasing its own tail. Um, it really is reinforcing, just as you describe, um, it is a huge influence in the broader narrative of how these studies and how COVID should be interpreted. You agree? Yeah. 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 And on the one hand, I, I somehow completely understand, uh, you know, what, you know, why this uh, makes sense to a journalist in the sense that, you know, this platform gives you this unparalleled view of, you know, people having these conversations uh, amongst each other, right? Normally as a journalist, you wouldn't, you know, see these sort of public conversations among scientists. And so it is this, you have this seemingly unique, uh, uh, you know, lens into the scientific process, but I think it really gives you an incorrect impression in terms, right? I mean, I think, you know, as a journalist, your impression is the most popular people on Twitter are the best scientists right, with correct. the best thoughts correct. who, you know, who's, and who are the most respected people in their field. Yes. But of course, that's not, I mean, most people are just not on Twitter correct. and being an excellent scientist is not positively correlated with spending time on Twitter. Correct. So I think, and that somehow I think you know, there's that fallacy underpins uh, a lot of what goes wrong here. Um, I think 
right, like you said, uh, certainly I think the pandemic would have played out differently if it wasn't for social media. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, that is exactly how it would have played differently. I, I don't know, but certainly it's had an effect and it, it hasn't had an effect that's by virtue of bringing people good information. That's correct. Had, that's correct. It, the, the, the sense of which it's had, effect, had an effect is, is sort of, you know, giving, getting people to, you know, reinforce uh, some currently popular idea and pay attention to an astonishingly small fraction of the scientific community, which is the loud part of the community on Twitter. Yeah. Um, um, I'll just, um, I'll, I'll just end the Twitter discussion because I think we could talk about this all day uh, by saying <laughs> that if anyone doubts that, um, that people who don't say accurate things um, can get oversized following an influence on Twitter, I just have two words for you and they're both Eric. Um, so on, <laughs> on that positive, <laughs> on that positive. Um, okay, let me ask you about school closure. So school yeah. closure was, it's related to this issue. It was, I believe, driven in part by the rhetoric on Twitter, and in part because Trump commented on it. Um, yeah. You, you, I, you know, every time I think I have a good thought, I, and you said you could, <laughs> you hit reply, and then you put something you said in June, and I was like, shit, this guy was way ahead of me. Um, <laughs> what are your thoughts on school closure, um, and 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 when did you start to have them, and 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 how did you see, and how do you interpret how this played out? I mean, I was already like in the spring, I was already upset just when people were talking about how schools were going to close as the sort of inevitability. Uh, I mean, you know, when people, so I remember, uh, you know, in New York, they were under incredible pressure to close the school. And I think, you know, now it, it, it's like relatively uncontroversial. Well, obviously they should have closed the school then, but I, I think that's not so clear. And I think that some of the countries that did close schools, it, it, you know, early on have, have you know, have explicitly, you know, said that that decision was just sort of made in panic and, and under duress. I mean, it's New York, the situation is crazy. It's there are 100,000 homeless children in the school system. Yeah. It's just an, it's like an unparalleled situation uh, in terms of what, you know, politicians uh, and scientists expounding on Twitter are imagining in their head. Right. You know, people that, you know, come from, you know, nice privileged backgrounds who thought, well, you know, if I had to spend a few months at home with my parents teaching me to read instead of in school, I would have been OK. That's not really relevant right, to right. whether it made sense to close the schools in New York. It has really no bearing on the question. And I remember at the time, uh, you know, the, Cuomo and, and de Blasio. So, I mean, I don't remember exactly what each of them said on the top. And of course, they've you know both been uh, criticized for various things. But I remember one of the things uh, that uh, they talked about, maybe with de Blasio, was that you know once we close these, it's going to be very hard to get them open. Yeah. Right? I, yes. You have the sense that you, uh, there was this realization that somehow, like, it's, this is something that's very hard to undo. Yeah. And and you know that I think was in hindsight quite prescient. Yes. And it, it had been yes. very difficult for people to move to to, to turn around. And I think, it, you know, it, it is astonishing that in the entire country, there is a one-week period during which all the schools were closed. Yes. Right? I mean, the pandemic wasn't doing the same thing in all of these places. Correct. There is a one-week period where, where this happened everywhere. Um, and then, I, I mean, the sense in which schools have been reopened has been largely disconnected from, you know, any actual facts on the ground in terms of Correct. transmission. It's been, Correct. you know, much more connected to politics and other things. Um, but I mean, the thing that I think, you know, people should think about is that, you know, the U.S. is a complete exception in this regard. It's not an exception in terms of doing a bad job at, man at managing the number of COVID cases. There are plenty of countries that are doing a bad job at that. But it is a singular exception in the decision to let schools be closed 
for tons of children. Yeah. And it's something that, I mean, you know, until now, like the, the story about, you know, sort of how the U.S. has failed its various, you know, marginalized populations is a complicated one. And there's like a lot of multifaceted aspects. In the future, there's going to be one very big thing that we did wrong. And it's going to be this thing that we're doing right now. Yes. And I think it's, you know, it's something that, you know, we should be upset about all the time. Yes. And there's it, there's so much silence on this from people that were willing to, like, go out and say, give opinions on what Sweden should be doing. Right. Right. They should say Sweden should close more things. But, oh, but I can't I can't I can't say anything about schools and whether they should be open because that's a political question. Right. And like we have this thing where like people that were willing to come out and forcefully argue for closures, not even in their own country, mm -hmm. are not willing to say, look, actually, this is pretty safe. We should be doing this. And yeah, that and silence from experts, I think, has had a huge effect on the discussion um, because that void has been filled by completely reasonable fear that I understand, right? I mean, if, if you don't have access to a lot of information and you're told that this stuff is scary and then people are not constantly telling you, actually, it's not, you're going to be left with that fear, and it's going to be very hard to turn off. I I couldn't agree more. Um, the the there's a vacuum, especially from the quote unquote thought leaders, uh, the public health experts on schools. They were quiet in the summer. The moment Trump said it uh, was also an opportunity yeah. for people to choose political allegiance versus the best um, appraisal of the evidence. And the problem yeah. is, he is such an oversized figure. He's so influential. Even when he said, even when you oppose him, you're being yeah. influenced by him. You don't see, you're a pawn in his game. Um, and yet, so that was part of the problem. Um, I think you're 100% right. It will be the greatest error of this country. It won't be the cases, won't be the debts. Um, those are bad, but there'll be other countries that join right. us They're in that bad category. Um, we will be the exactly, alone yeah. of, in the category of wealthy, industrialized nations that took it out on the poorest kids. And it's going to play out yeah. not even in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, or my rest of my life. I'm going to be living with the political yeah. and economic consequences of what they did right now. Right. Um, and, and it's going to haunt us. It'll haunt, yeah. it'll it'll ruin a lot of the things about this country. Um, and I, I don't think people fully appreciate yeah, everything, it. Everything that is already bad about the U.S. will get worse, right? Like the, the worst characteristics of the country will be made worse by this decision. And and that's somehow right. It's a disturbing it's a disturbing fact and, and yeah. It's it's hard to get away from. Let's ask you about masks. You have a very interesting thought about um cloth masks, surgical masks, N ninety fives. And 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 one of the points I think you always make very astutely is that if you ask people to wear the wrong mask at the wrong time, that's a missed opportunity for asking them to wear the right mask at the right time. And the more you keep talking about the wrong mask at the wrong time, like a cloth mask in the rain outdoors, you're not telling people to wear an N95 no. when working in close contact indoors. So I wonder if you would elaborate on how you think about masks, um, you know, because you come at it from a very different point of view than a lot of the rhetoric we've heard. Yeah, so certainly. I mean, if you see, take public transportation. On public transportation, there are people, you know, of all sorts, you know, taking the bus, whatever, they have to go somewhere. This includes people that, you know, are in high risk groups, some older people. And some of them, like, seem like they approached it, you know, with a lot of caution, right? They try to keep their distance from people, et cetera. But one thing that you very rarely see is somebody wearing an actual mask designed to filter uh, the air that you breathe. 
right? And so, for example, I mean, early in the right in, in the spring when they switched, you know, the uh, initially they told people don't don't wear masks, which obviously, this in hindsight was right. a, a big blunder. And then they switched to saying, you know, wear masks, but wear cloth masks. And uh, it's not to protect you, it's to protect other people, right? It's a complicated story. Yeah. Um, and when they did this, of course, you know, part of the reason for all this was that they were trying to protect massive supplies for uh, healthcare workers. But now, if you go to Target or Amazon, you can buy these KN95 masks that seem pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I don't know right. if they're the same as a right. 3M right. N95 mask, but right. they are at least designed to filter the air that you breathe. Sure. Um, you know, probably it would be good to have some better safety data on them, but certainly they seem a lot better than cloth masks. Yes. And we could be telling people, look, if you want to protect yourself, you should be wearing these, especially in high risk, especially in high risk situations. If you're on a bus, if you're indoors with people, uh, you should be doing this. But instead, we're telling people that like these cloth masks, they you should wear you should wear these, and not only should you wear them, but they might protect you. Right? This is you know shortly before the controversial Danish mask study came out. Uh, the CDC had just recently updated its guidance to tell people the cloth masks may actually protect you. That there was some evidence of this. Yeah. And when we tell people that, what we're telling them is, this is the thing that you should use. And if you look at the CDC website, it actively discourages you from considering other types of masks. And that, I mean, it could easily be that we, we may easily eventually learn that cloth masks do nothing to protect you, and these other types of masks would be quite effective. Yes. And in that case, we basically spent a lot of mask advocacy telling people not to do something that could be effective. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the mask thing, it's, yeah, I mean, yeah, the mask, the discussion about mask science is, you know, on the one hand, I think it's the one where people are being especially irrational. On the other hand, somehow it's, it's easy to get too worked up about it. Cause unlike schools, the mask thing is going to end with a pandemic. It's not going to, I mean, it, it may affect outcomes somewhat, but, uh, I think the, the, the errors that we're making in this discussion are, are much less consequential than, uh, than in some other areas, but certainly, yeah, I mean, it's it's not a case where we've been especially scientific. Oh, my um, God. You said it so well. I mean, that's exactly how I view it. I mean, I think more about the errors that will have the long-term consequence. This error, I think, the consequence will be there are some people at high risk indoor um, working close to other people's situations who are getting, I think, misguided advice. And there are a lot of people who are in situations where a cloth mask ain't going to do anything, probably not just for you, but not for anyone else, like being outdoors um, in the elements when people aren't close, right. like on trails, um, and they're getting right. advice that just takes their mental energy. Um, and I think the irrationality is that the cloth mask, yeah. wearing it at all times, like your, I don't know, like a pendant that your your loved one gave you, I mean, it has become an identity symbol, and it's intertwined <laughs> with politics, and anyone who's good guys, no, good yeah, guys wear one, and bad guys yeah, don't, absolutely. and it's a uniform, I mean, it's a ridiculous, it's gone out of control. But I don't want it's not a hill i want to die on you want to wear a mask you wear your mask you you know i wear a mask too exactly no exactly this is there's plenty of hills there's plenty of hill yeah, the school exactly. hill is the hill that on. i've been wanting to die on for a long time um okay now let's talk about vaccine um you know it's an it, it's it's an interesting question to me one of the things that people haven't discussed um, that I'm curious how you think about is um, the efficacy and safety standards for a pneumococcal vaccine brought out in 2009. They may be a certain level, but the efficacy and safety yeah. standards for a vaccine brought out now may not be at that level because one of the things that we have to go into that calculus 
is that every day you're without the vaccine and you basically shut down the global economy or keep people in their houses and things like that, that is paying a mortality price that needs to be factored into your calculus. So I think a vaccine that is a little bit more adverse events than other vaccines is immensely acceptable if you start to factor in the externalities that exist in a way that they never exist in any other healthcare approval decision. I wonder how you think about this question. Um, you, you like what you see? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. No, go ahead. Yeah, when I see. No, no, I guess I, I like, you, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess, I mean, the, I guess the decision is imminent. And these days, the UK has already approved one. So I think there's a 99 point, you're the probability guy, but it's got a lot of nines in it that we're going to get a vaccine in the next two weeks. Um, um, but, you know, do you think, how, how do you view the discussion about vaccines? You know, what, what are the thoughts that have been in your mind? Yeah, so, uh, okay, and, and this is, you know, maybe a good time to remind everybody that I'm, I'm not an expert on healthcare or vaccines. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, uh, but yeah, so what I would say about this, so one thing I, I think is reasonable to keep in mind, so I mean, like this difference between uh, UK dose, the UK timing and US timing, I, I don't think that the effect of this is going to be to shift the entire vaccination strategy back by however many weeks the difference is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, Whenever the vaccine is approved, a few a few weeks or, or a month later, we're going to be at manufacturing limited uh, dosing. I would yes, expect very quickly. Um, I think, so yeah. it's true that there's some small number of doses that. So I think that you know it's true that there's some number of doses that this will affect, and, and you know depending on how effectively the the, the decisions made about how to deploy them, that could have an effect. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, I mean. I, I haven't followed this discussion about delaying the decision very much. It's weird because I assume that, you know, when you're taking some protracted decision-making process, it, it, it suggests that you actually think that there's a chance that you're not going to decide ah, to Correct. That. Exactly. That, uh, yeah, sure right, 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 right. If you're taking a time to decide, well, seems, it, can, it can only be based on the assumption right. that there is some probability you're not going to say yes. And if that probability you're not going to say yeah. yes is 0. Right. 000 0.000001, you're just – clogging up the progress. No. We just need to do this. Um, I think, I think the, the, yeah, dis- yeah. the discussion no, okay. was, so, there was a, uh, there was a poll, there was some sort of petition sent around in the summertime and it wanted to change a rule of drug approval. The initial FDA guidance was that, um, Every trial needed a median of a two months follow up for safety events. We all know that the probability of a safety uh, event after a vaccine is very high early and dissipates over time, of course. Um, so it was a median of two months. There's this 40,000 person trial. Um, so, you know, of course, 20,000 people have two months and 20,000 people have less than two months. Um, and somebody and some group of people wanted to change that to a minimum of two months per person, meaning that the last person enrolled in the study had to be have two months of follow up. Um, that you know, it won't get you a lot more. Um, I think it won't tighten your I confidence see. intervals on your safety signals. But what it will do is it'll make the decision ensured that it would happen after November fourth. And it was, in my opinion, hard not to see that as sort of just a naked attempt to kick this forward beyond November fourth and the election so that uh, yeah, somebody sure. couldn't take credit for it. I mean, so anyway, so I, I, I think I was never a fan of this minimum versus median. And I think this guy, Waleed Jalad, who I'll have on, he's, he'll articulate why he doesn't like it. I mean, there was also this thing with the Pfizer vaccine, right, where they had decided to delay their first look, um, uh, right? They had a decision. Yes. They could look like there were 32 events. Yes. And then somebody... In- and somebody kept pushing them for like 90 events. Yes, I, rem- I, I yeah. vaguely remember this. This was another dialogue. Um, and again, and yeah, it, it was easy to see that as just a, a decision to sort of postpone. Um, and I can imagine thinking that, you know, no matter what's going on with the election, just somehow the vaccine would be less political if it was after the election. But yeah, it's not good to, 
I think in general, we've had this huge mistake where people are constantly trying to, you know, outthink the science. Yeah. Like, let me, let me be strategic about how I do my science here. And that has just been a disaster from the beginning. I mean, the exhibit number one is the decision to tell people that masks don't work oh, yeah. unless you're a doctor. Um, and that was gaming out the science, which is what that was, right? And uh, and then we've had this, you know, left and right uh, ever since then, which is, I mean, you have people that are, you know, serious people that know what they're talking about and routinely say things uh, that uh, are not actually supported by the evidence so much as just something which is kind of maybe compatible with some evidence and is supporting some political position that they think is going to uh, be good in the sense that it will it will save lives, right? Yes. But that's different than actually you know fairly representing the science. And um, and I think yeah, I mean when you set okay, so here's a concrete example. Uh, in the summer, uh, there was you know there was this discussion about you know okay it, to what extent is coronavirus seasonal? Yeah, is I remember. Right? Yeah, and um, and a lot of people <laughs> there were people that were actually forcefully making the case that it was a bad idea to sort of seriously examine the seasonality of SARS-CoV-2 because yes. if we learn, like if we told people actually it's seasonal, uh, well then, oh, that might mean that people take it less seriously over the summer yes. or something like that. I think it, it, we, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, failing to understand and plan for the seasonality was a, was a bad thing. It was a blunder. Yeah, it was definitely a blunder. And you can you can ask, like, what would we have done differently with this information? And that's it. We, we should have that conversation. But the problem is the tendency is to have that conversation before we decide to, like, look at the answer. Right. Like somehow we're like, should we do science to figure out whether it's seasonal? And people are like, well, first, in my head, let me figure out what do I think we could do with that information? If it's not what I already thought we should, we should do before, then I don't want to figure out whether it's seasonal. That is. And somehow well like put, all yeah. the science is subjected to this test. Right. It's like right now, I think we should be locking down over the summer. So let's think if I if we look into the seasonality and we discover some seasonal pattern, I think that means it will be less likely to lock down over the summer. So that means we shouldn't look into it. And that kind of like testing whether we should do the science oh based on the policy implications has colored a lot of, you know, a lot of what people are even willing to talk about. Yes. Um, and I think, oh, so well put. I mean, what you, what, what I mean, I'm gonna try to paraphrase what your art, your argument is, which is that um, a common mantra in this space, of course, is follow the science, meaning that our policies and our politics should follow what science says. Um, and, and I argued recently um, that I think it's inadequate. Of course, even if you have the best science, there are value judgments you have to make as a society that are inherently ascientific, non-scientific, and that requires everybody to participate. No scientist can tell you if this is the pluses and minuses of opening schools. The scientist can't answer that question. People have to answer that question. I think the calculus strongly favors opening them. Um, but what you're suggesting is that in reality, what we've been doing is science has been following the politics, meaning that scientific questions have been asked and debated against the backdrop of what that information might mean for policy decisions. And very early on, I think after the initial lockdown or into the initial lockdown, um, uh, two weeks in or one week in, I think it became clear that there was going to be some schism, a natural you know, debate about whether or not the benefits and harms of this massive intervention uh, are worth it. Um, and there was a faction who felt strongly that the longer we keep a lid on things, um, the better it would be. And that faction felt strongly that any probing of the question of seasonality um, could be used as a justification to lighten up over the summer. But in retrospect, 
lightning up over the summer might not have been a bad idea because the caseload might not have been uh, bad in that time. Um, and, and you know, I had Stefan Baral, who came on this podcast, uh, uh, you know, a card-carrying progressive um, who was, um, you know, told privately not to talk about seasonality uh, early on, even though I think at the end of the day, it will be true um, that there is some relationship between contagion and temperature, uh, ambient temperature. I think that will materialize. Maybe not. it's not a perfect light switch, but there's something to it, uh, as it is for other coronaviruses, which is yeah. a well-documented fact. Um, but that's a good example. That's science following the politics. No, right. And this, I mean, it pervades so much of the, uh, of the discussion. And I mean, one way in which I find, uh, one, way, one disturbing consequence of this is that I think that, you know, there are places that have just explicitly made this decision to sort of ignore the, you know, the scientific consensus, uh, like, for example, like Florida opened up at a time when most people were telling them not to. And I would say that they opened up, it's not like they did a careful job. No, right. They just sort of opened up haphazardly. Um, and they didn't try to, this is in April, it in, to... in April. No, well, even, uh, yes, they, okay. But then when they had this increase in cases, they persisted, right, yes. and decided not to. So later in the summer, you're right. This is uh, right. later in the summer, but but ultimately, yeah. were they not vindicated? Because no, that, that's my that's point. point. Yeah, that, yeah. My point is that somehow, like they they decided to sort of go against scientific consensus, if we can call it that. Yes. But the result of that might well be not just that uh, it was okay in terms of cumulative numbers. It, there's a chance it even helped them, right? The, the I mean, so there's this phenomenon where. Uh, Suppressing anything but the last wave of your epidemic can actually increase the cumulative number of cases and deaths that you have, mm-hmm. uh, right? Because somehow, you know, if you imagine that uh, the the epidemic that there's some seasonality uh, to infectiousness, and so the the greatest uh, epidemic potential is occurring in the fall, you don't want to. Uh, you, you, it's not ideal to enter the fall. With a fully susceptible population, right? Because then and, you'll and, end up with more overshoot. Yes, I you guess it's the opposite yeah. of flatten the curve. It's pull pull some of the curve earlier. Exactly. Pull, pull exactly. Cur- pull some of the curve sooner because then you will have the capacity to handle that. Rather than the situation we're facing, I think in places like South Dakota, in Indiana, where we're really kind of getting to the limit right now. Um, exactly. And, and now, that limit may be yeah. a consequence of. Um, you know, I wonder if you'll speak a little bit about did the did the flatten the curve mantra shift along the way from flatten the curve to COVID zero? Um, how, oh, how certain, right? Yeah. I mean, certainly flatten the curve is, is is. I mean, this was not supposed to mean that we try to get to no cases and then control them with test and trace so that nobody's getting uh, uh, any infections. That uh, so flatten the curve was supposed to be that. Uh, Right. So there's this phenomenon. Okay. I mean, uh, just to talk about the basics, there's this phenomenon where, you know, in a completely uncontrolled epidemic, you would see this growth and then it peaks and you know, you have this kind of this curve. And this point at which it, it peaks is that this is the point where each infected person is infecting on average one more person. Right. This is why so then it's leveled off. And from there, infections decrease. But in particular, that point where it peaks is the point at which you've reached this sort of herd immunity threshold, where if then you could magically stop all further infections from happening, the epidemic would not be sustainable. And, and uh, at least in theory, you wouldn't have uh, a, another outbreak unless conditions change. So the idea of flatten the curve is, is well, uh, let's actually uh, decrease transmission temporarily so that we still have an epidemic curve, but so that the total size of the curve 
is is what gets us to herd immunity rather than just that first thing up to the peak. Yes. Um, and doing this, so you you know you reduce the number of hospitalizations that happen at once, but you also reduce the total number of hospitalizations, the total deaths, and things like that. But yeah, so that we had that story, and then at some point, uh, you know, somebody published a Medium article about how actually we had to <laughs> brush the curve yeah. and then dance around it. And my impression Hammering is that that actually shifted. Yeah, people what thinking. experts in this field thought we should do. Yes, right. Yes. Which is some, unbelievable. Some shitty Medium article changed how quote unquote experts. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I, I guess, I, I mean, they, they have expertise, i.e. deep expertise of infectious disease that exists in a lot of people, yeah. um, particularly at the individual patient level, and a lot of expertise yeah. in modeling and modeling pandemics. But nobody, I think what's missing from this is nobody has expertise in containment of massive transmission across um, count, uh, country lines. That expertise does not exist because this has never no, yeah. really happened, right? Uh, so right. I think many people, you know, uh, so that might be part of the reason why someone can be influenced by a Medium article, which I think I, I I don't actually I I think you're onto something that that was a, a defining event. It was extremely influential. I mean, if you look at the articles that the same people, the the columns, the same people were writing, you know, before that came out and yeah. around that time, uh, you know, they they read like you know uh, very skeptical of the idea that you can completely contain and suppress uh, all spread. I mean, and I then, think, yeah, the, the Swedish experts have always said, you know, Johan Gesecki and others from the outset that that is an inevitability. And, and, and um, uh, okay, so that, that's one point. I guess um, uh, the, the other point that I think um, I, I, is, is interesting to me here is this idea that um, cases over the last month have surged. Um, actually, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. The thing I want to talk about first is the country-to-country comparison. Um, Many many amateur and expert people have playing the game of the country-to-country comparison. Why did Sweden do this? And why did um, South Korea do that? And why did Taiwan do that? Oh, my God. So, I mean, as a a methods person, you know, I mean, here at least some of the challenges I see with these comparisons. One, availability of testing is different in different places. Two, criteria for hospitalization is different in different places. Three, reporting and tracking of deaths is different in different places. Attribution of death is different in different places. Um, um, The ability to even track is different in different places. So, you know, um, I, I heard something that in India there weren't a lot of cases at some point, and I was like, well, how would you even know that to be the case? What is the mechanism of tracking? Um, so, okay, so this is some fundamental, you're measuring your variable different in different places. That's, for all these variables, even deaths, I think people, do, are, it's underappreciated how different the variable measurement is. The next thing is, um, once you do measure in some way you can make comparisons, um, there are many things that you're not capturing. Prior uh, infections with coronavirus and some potential T-cell immunity, which by the way was another controversial topic to even discuss in March, that there could be T-cell immunity. Um, um, what are your thoughts? Um, how, how, you know, you know how, how do you approach country-to-country comparisons when it comes to drawing conclusions about the actions of man um, rather than anything else? Yeah, yeah man, I man think the, the country-to-country comparisons it's, I mean, frankly, I find it, I, I found it ex- very surprising the, the pro, like how high profile people are willing to cite this as evidence of something. Right. Uh, I think it, right. I mean, imagine if we were first studying malaria and we said, well, I mean, they don't have a big malaria problem in Maine. Why don't we just get, you know, well, why can't everybody else just do whatever they're doing? I yes, mean, right. there are <laughs> often regional differences that we don't understand at the outset. And okay, in the case of malaria, there's some weird, there's some particular obvious difference that it's possible to eventually completely understand. Yes. Um, 
But for something like uh, for something like uh, COVID, where, I mean, you have this respiratory virus. There's this, you know, important and subtle dependence on uh, social networks, which could be different in different places. Right. I mean, there's certainly, I mean, there's certainly a lot of variation from place to place. Um, you know, exactly how weather influences it, we still understand very poorly. Um, and, and prior and prior coronavirus circulating in the population. Oh, of course, and yeah. yes, absolutely. The, the susceptibility thing. I mean. I don't know if it means anything, but the fact that all of the best examples live in a four-hour band of time zones uh, is is a weird, striking fact. Right. Um, right. I mean, you have like Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Korea, Japan, China, and there. I mean, I don't. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but it's true that they're all sort of from one uh, band of, of longitudes. Um, and yeah, so certainly, I think. And it might be that they're just really doing things better, but it certainly reflects a lack of scientific curiosity to assume that. Yes. Um, and in particular, if I look at something like South Korea and Japan, what they're doing isn't actually that similar. Like they seem to have very different approaches and yet they've both been relatively successful. And I, I mean, there's this extent to which I, you know, you know, it's, it's possible that there's some, some sort of subtle subtle prejudice going on where somehow it's like these Asian countries we right. think of as they all have some common characteristics and uh, and and those characteristics are what's responsible for and somehow there's you know we're we're sort of imagining um, uh, that we understand what's going on maybe more than we do right I mean there's this tendency uh, right I mean I, I think this maybe was common for a lot of people in the spring we had this experience it seemed like the Asian countries were doing well and well, let me just think, what do I know about people in Asian countries? Exactly, oh, I remember yeah. seeing the people wearing masks in, right. in, in Asian countries. And so that must be the difference. Yes. Uh, but of course, I mean, there are many differences between cultures and societies. And, and assuming that the thing that you see is what matters uh, is, is probably problematic. I mean, in particular, I mean, the sense in which you see people wearing masks in these countries before uh, the pandemic was mostly that people were wearing masks, you know, you know, when you saw them, which yeah. is not usually when it matters, right? I mean, well, it wasn't. Oh, and that's a point you've, you've made <laughs> so, eloquently, I mean, is which is that mandates. Um, uh, uh, the question about a mandate is not, does someone wear a mask when I can shame them and spot them? It's, do they wear a mask yeah. when they need to or ought to? And that's a right. very different question than, you know, somebody I think said in my comments, um, ever since we had a mask mandate, but, oh, first of all, by the way, as if, as if it came at random, the cases were exploding. It was on the news. People were scared shitless. And then you put the mask mandate and then people were wearing masks and cases went down. Ergo, the mandate worked. I'm like, what are you talking about? I mean, everything, there's so many moving parts yeah. there. One would not conclude the mask work. And you're also not seeing, do they wear it when they're alone? Do they wear it when they're having a dinner party at their house? Um, which, of course, people are doing, whether or not we like it or not. That's people, people be people. No, exactly. And yeah, and the social, and like the, exactly how that happens and like what those social networks look like. And, and those things probably vary a lot from country to country also, and might also be playing some role here. And, and I mean, and as you said, I mean, there could be some susceptibility difference. And, and the point is, we just don't know. Uh, and, and instead, you know, people have, uh, you know, latched on to these things that, you know, as the, as the explanations uh, in a way that it seems unscientific. Actually, for me, somehow the most egregious example of this um, which, if, I mean, frankly, it's, it's, I mean, it's unbelievable to me that this is still what we're doing, is, is the idea, is describing these countries as having successfully controlled the epidemic through contact tracing, right? <laughs> so this is the story that you frequently yes, hear, right. you know, these, oh, and in, and in the case of Japan, it's not just contact tracing, it's backwards contact tracing. 
yes. which is even, you know, that's it's even, you know, this weird, interesting thing. Um, and so unlike almost everything else, like, you know, masks or clothing things or, you know, whatever, having people socialize less, this is something where you can actually, you know, if this is working, you should be able to write a very short, incontrovertible paper showing exactly you know, at what rate transmission rates are being stocked by contact tracing, right? And, you and, and, and let me ask you, you're skeptical in part because zero prevalence data does not support these claims. Is that is that part of your skepticism? Zero prevalence no, no, is still no. going so up. I'm not even saying, yeah. Okay, go on. So what I'm saying is the following. What I'm saying is for contact tracing, yes. if contact tracing yes. of is out-of-household yes. contacts is beneficial, then you should be able to demonstrate this with data. You yeah. should be able to say in each generation of the infection, this fraction of transmission was cut off by identifying who later somebody who later tested positive. Yeah, I see. And taking another transmission chain. And for all we know, maybe contact tracing is working, but it is unacceptable that what this December, it's been almost a year. And we, we like what we have in support of this idea is articles written by journalists. This is what we have. Yeah. And, you know, kudos to the journalists. They pointed out that these places are doing like interesting, different things from us. And that was a good first step. But the problem is then, so like the next step two is supposed to be the scientists and be like, oh, that's interesting. Let's see if that's what matters. Right. And then they're supposed to like gather data, you know, contact these, you know, contact the people in these countries, share data and like, see, is this actually what's different? Oh, but they can't, they, but, but the barrier to probing the question rigorously is that, it is it is it is not politically acceptable to to argue that the effect size is small for some of these things. I mean, I, have, I don't. In the case of contact tracing, I consider it actually just completely flabbergasting because it's literally not a single jurisdiction is routinely sharing the data. Oh that you yeah, need to do well, this. I mean, and I, it's just and, yeah, and so I, and the fact that nobody cares about this and and nobody is trying to get the data. I, I mean, this and I would say yeah, more generally. This fits into this broader context of there has not been a serious attempt to understand what's different in different countries. Yes, I think so. And and, and, and to use prospective randomization, which would have solved some of these questions. I mean, right, could, right. Yeah, right. Yes, you could have. Right. You could have done some randomization. You could have at least there could have been some standardized program of doing randomized antibody studies in different countries. Right. So there was this thing. I know there was this controversial right. antibody study that uh, in Tokyo. Uh, I, I don't remember when this came out a, a month or so ago. And uh, it was done at a at a at the among the employees of a single employer, uh, which is, you know, not ideal, but supposedly they were at multiple sites. But in any case, it found that over a relatively short period that zero prevalence in this population at the single employer went from, you know, some very small rate to like 50%, mm -hmm. right? So it's like a huge number of people ended up with antibodies. And I think this was rightly, you know, it was rightly pointed out at the time, this is just one study and it's of some weird population. And this is not really great evidence that 50% of Japan had antibodies to, sure. uh, to SARS-CoV-2, but what did not happen was a follow-up study right. to actually find out what the number is. <laughs> right. And so it's just like somehow at every step we're flying blind. Um, well, and, you know, uh, that, that same thing could be applied to, I think, another infamous IFR study, Santa Clara, which is, um, you know, uh, obviously the butt of every of everyone's, I mean, obviously, since those people are responsible for everything that's happened this last year. No, but I mean, I know, I mean but, it, but it feels like that. But I mean, a simple way to really most rigorously probe their hypothesis would be to have replicated it in the, right after they did the study um, to see yeah. what the prevalence is. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, want to ask you about that. I mean, let's talk about that. Um, uh, y y you walk the tightrope 
I feel online. I mean, you walk the line of um, uh, you're, you're not giving people any unnecessary sympathy, but at the same time, you are not trying to curtail or cut off um, or censor or quiet um, views that you disagree with. Uh, how do you, um, you know, how, and then, you know, of course, there've been all these recent, uh, it's back up against, it's flared up, um, you know, John Yonides and, and, and these articles. Uh, how do you think about the, the discussion around these, uh, what, the, what they are called the COVID contrarians? Yeah. How do you, how do you think about okay, that? Okay. So, I mean, if, we, if we're talking specifically about the antibody studies, I mean, I, I remember when they came out, uh, yeah, I was very interested in, in, in the studies. I remember thinking that, you know, when they came out, the, I think the, the false positive rate, uh, it was, you know, a potential issue. It was a huge issue. Um, yeah. I mean, all yeah. the positives and, could have been false positives. Yeah. And their conference right. and, and it was miscalculated. That's the end yeah. of story. No doubt about right. it. Yeah. And, and this is not a joke. I actually, I was, so I think it was for the second one, which was maybe Santa Clara. I actually managed to go to the Zoom press conference. I like attended oh, it. Oh, wow. And I asked them if they had measured the false positive rate of the test, like through the chat, but they didn't answer. Like, uh, it was only but <laughs> so I was very interested in these studies. Yes. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, it, it, this is a good example where uh, the studies weren't perfect. And it was certainly possible to sort of, especially, yeah, again, so now I'm getting these up, mixed up in my head, but I remember the first one in particular was, uh, was seemed, uh, the first. Okay. The first, I, I'm trying, I'm confusing them too. I, I, I thought Santa Clara came before LA County. That was the other one around that time. Okay. Maybe that's right. So I think maybe the LA County one was, was the more, was seemed more, uh, trustworthy to me because in particular even if you use santa clara yes. as a false positive rate like even if you assume right because la county found like a higher percentage positive than santa clara like so let's make up numbers let's say like la county found five percent positive and santa clara found two percent let's make up the numbers. something like even yeah, if you said it, okay let's let's give you that the false positive rate's two percent correct la county still, still finding yes right yeah yes, yeah yes, so that's yes, why yes. i wasn't I, worried I, about the LA. I, I think that was la county yeah I, yeah I, so I, I wasn't as worried about the la one uh, but it's a, it's. I mean, the criticism in some sense just got ridiculous. Like the idea that they, that the studies were being published for financial gain by the people doing them. Yeah. I mean, I don't know these people, but I have a strong sense that they're writing this stuff because they think it yes. rightly or wrongly. Yes. Not because somebody else thinks. Right. I mean, the, what is the reason for like worried for being worried about a conflict of interest, financial conflict of interest? The reason is that you want to believe that like this thing that somebody's writing is what they actually think. Oh my God, you're the. As opposed to, I gotta tell you, as opposed to what somebody else thinks <laughs> that's somehow paying them. And yes. I think in the, in the case of these people, we have absolutely no doubt whatsoever this is actually what they think. Can I just they're not doing it because somebody else thinks it and they're, and they're being paid. Can I just, so, like, I, I've tried very hard to explain to people financial conflict interest. The way I explain it is, this is the entity on one end here, and it's tied financially yeah. to this other entity. So I'm, I got my two hands up. Yeah. They're tied together. Yeah. But entity on the left that you're tied to, it only makes money from doing X and not the opposite of X. It only makes money from yeah, yeah, flying yeah. on airlines. It only makes money from right. selling drugs. So yeah. I've gotten criticism because I've been a critic of, you know, doctors who consult for pharma and they always recommend the pharma drugs off, you know, blah, right. blah, blah. And I'm like, well, that's a conflict of interest because you're taking money from Celgene and Celgene only makes money from selling their drug. They don't make money right. from not selling their drug and you're taking a lot of money from them. So you have the same incentive as they to sell the drug. And so you say all these And things. in particular, it's very reasonable for us to suspect that yes. what you're saying now is what Celgene thinks. Yes, exactly. And it's very reasonable extent. that Celgene yeah. has influenced your opinion on this issue yeah. because you take money from them, they only make yeah. money from selling drugs. But then I've also had people throw in yeah. my face, they're like, oh, VP, you 
wrote a book published by Johns Hopkins University Press, uh, which, by the way, has paid me like $1 per hour I spent writing this <laughs> academic book that no one fucking reads. Okay, no one's reading the book. Okay, so they say, you have a conflict of interest because what you think is to sell your book. And I was like, but when I wrote my book, that was what I thought. I thought. I, exactly. I thought that, and I still think that. So I'm, I do have yeah. a conflict, which is I know what I think, and I'm very dogged in what I think. I'm going to keep saying that shit, but I don't have a conflict that I'm not saying this shit because I wrote a book. And certainly I'm not a book. It's not the book to make money. If I want to write a book to make money, yeah. it's called How to Cure Cancer with Green Tea. That's the book to make right. money. Right? Exactly. So, right. all right. So anyway, so, so these guys, my understanding of it is, and I don't know, it's being, I don't know, there's some, there's some tribunal that will judge them and, and maybe hang one or two of them. But, um, you know, the oh, tribunal right. is looking into whether or not Somebody who was formerly the CEO of JetBlue, but on the board of the directors, he gave $5,000 to some university slush fund, and they made this study for $50,000, of which some of that money may have his $5,000. First of all, $5,000, he got to kick in a little. I mean, he's going to have to kick in a little bit more than that. Um, but second of all, I mean, even if the, no matter what the results showed, I'm not necessarily convinced that JetBlue would have some, you know, surge in their ticket sales in response. I mean, uh, it's one study. It's not going to, it's not going to, you know, fight the narrative. I mean, there's also, yeah, I, I would say like, there's two questions here. Like okay, right. uh, one, I guess there's some like sort of technical, like scientific ethics question for scientific ethics nerds, which I hope, and I hope we have some of those, sure. which is like, should this funding have happened? Sure, exactly. That's, like, that, that's their that, question. That's right. like, fine. We can like geek out on that question, but that's sort of a very niche question in the context of the pandemic. Yes. The relevant <laughs> question is like, do we think that this is not actually what these authors think? And that instead they're saying this stuff just in, just to support that, but I think nobody actually thinks that. No, they so are. I, they believe that, the, that, that they're motivated by a strong. You may disagree with their belief, but it is their belief, and exactly, it is exactly right. Yeah, right. I mean, right. Yeah, and, and so, and I think that it just it does a disservice to. Uh, you know, to all sides of the debate to sort of distract it. Uh, Sim it similarly, I mean, like with the Danish mask study, yes, I know. this discussion yeah. about like, yeah. they did they follow the ethics guidelines? And, you know, they have this letter I from know. the ethics committee saying, obviously you don't need ethical review for this. And then people are like, oh, but maybe that wasn't enough. That doesn't, like, okay, fine. Like there, hopefully there are some ethics people and they can like, have a conference about this, but for the rest of us, can we just like figure out what it means? Yeah, right, and I don't right. think that this really matters from the standpoint of evaluating the actual effectiveness of, of the study. I guess I would um, say in COVID, I mean, there are many sectors in the world where one worries about conflict of interest from Dick Cheney and Halliburton to these yeah. doctors in pharma. But when it comes to COVID and this, the magnitude of the interventions we're doing, I simply do not believe that almost any of these actors are motivated by what you know like uh, you think you think jay bot and the the great barrington declaration is like he he actually knows it'll kill people like he believes it won't kill people i mean you may disagree about it but he's not saying it yeah. because he thinks it increases death no, exactly right, like right. That's, he, yeah, he believes the idea that these, and, and we have a record of them thinking this from the beginning yeah right so like okay. did they have this idea back in march they're like hmm maybe if i portray myself as thinking this thing then Six months from now, some right-wing think tank is going to let me use their building to yeah. sign a document. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, it's, quite, it's, it's quite a master plan. I don't know. It's just, uh, yeah. And, and it's just absurd that this is somehow the level of debate that we're having. And, you know, we shouldn't do it for anybody. We shouldn't do it for the virologist either. We shouldn't, like, look at the way that they're making money from selling whatever. It's just, it's not it's not what the discussion should be based on. Uh, yes. And in fact, I, I mean, I've tried to stay stay out of that part. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's nobody, nobody is being, people are influenced by their 
preconceived notions and biases. Uh, that's right. enough. My last, my last question for you. Um, uh, um, so, so now I, I mean, I, I, from talking to you, I see why I like your stuff so much because, um, it, <laughs> I mean, cause you're coming, you're, I mean, it's not just that we see things eye to eye is that, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to do what you're doing, which is like, I'm just trying to approach these from like, I really don't have a skin in the game. I didn't have, I mean, I actually remember uh, two moments in my life. There are two, there's two things that I ended up arguing about a lot. One was like mammographic screening. I remember like being that medical student and thinking like, oh shit, that must be really good. And then I just read some articles. I was like, what the hell? This don't look so good. And then as I kept reading, I was like, oh God, this is not so good. And I remember uh, the, the school yeah. closure. I remember thinking like, oh, kids must be spreading it. There's little varmints. They're all yeah. spreading everything. And then I remember sort of reading and reading the contact tracing. And one, like they're barely represented. And two, um, yeah. when they are represented, their loved ones are less likely to get it than if the father had it. Um, and, and, then, and then I started to look at the educational outcomes and, and by race and gender. And I was like, oh, God, this is a nightmare. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, so I mean, I mean, and I think that's what you're trying to do is sort through these things. I guess my, my last thought is... Um, um, the the waves. I mean, um, peop, a country like the U.S. is a big piece of territory, and everyone says first wave, second wave, third wave. Um, but I do note that they are, uh, to some degree, not geographically overlapping. And yeah, I sure. and, yeah, and and so I wonder, like, is is all you're seeing really that um, you know New York City was already probably in the thick of transmission when we had the March shutdown, but South Dakota wasn't. And in South Dakota, you told them like shit is coming and nothing and, and I don't want to say nothing there were deaths in South Dakota of course but it wasn't the magnitude of what people expected it wasn't I mean I think many of us felt like in March that you know which one of my aunts and uncles is going to be dead I mean how many of them will it be two or three of my aunts and uncles you know I started to feel that way um, and then that didn't materialize I mean um, you know p p many people I know and my patients and stuff um, people have died and it was tragic and but many of us did not experience as many casualties as we had thought were coming and that leads people to loosen their guard. And so South Dakota eventually, um, you know, the same panic media will not keep them panicked. And they're eventually going to start to cheat and do other things. And they're going to get hit. Um, and so so South Dakota is to some degree having, I, I would argue, their first wave, the wave that New York City had many months ago. It just took a while to get started. Um, I wonder how you think about the waves. Uh, it, you know, yeah. Yeah, so it's definitely true that in these like big, uh, you know, geographically spread out countries, you see these, uh, yeah, these waves that are actually sort of, you know, different geographic regions, or sometimes you see these like long series of flat cases where it looks like you have constant cases, but actually you have like a, it's really a series of waves in, yes. in different uh, in different parts of the country. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's very hard to, I mean, imagine some counterfactual in which North Dakota had not locked down, right. had sort of, you know, taken moderate measures over the summer. And then was prepared to take, you know, those severe measures right, you know, three weeks ago. Yeah. As transmission correct. got more severe. Right. So, OK, that would have required, you know, maybe you say that would require too much of a crystal ball. Right. OK, we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future. But I think it, there's not really a there was never a good argument uh, that was based on other based on, on any actual data that it made sense to lock down in these places that weren't experiencing a ton of cases. Because, I mean, if you go back and you read what the epidemiologist wrote before the Hammond dance was written on the medium, it was not widely believed that we could just control COVID with test and trace. Yes, And yeah, there was of course no data not. at the time to and, make and, it sound and, like that was... 
And I'm, I'm not convinced There's that not it's even doable. I mean, when you talk right. about the rates that we have, it's not even possible. You can't trace every contact. It's every other person in the state. I mean, it's right. it, it, it's not even possible. It's not even clear. Right. And it's not even clear. Right. I mean, the, I, I think it's important to emphasize that even at low rates. So there's this idea that, OK, but if we lock down and got the number of cases low, then we could do it. And I think it's important to emphasize that that's not clear either. Yeah. It's not clear that that is the main reason that South Korea and Japan and whoever else is left is doing okay, right? I mean, there there can certainly be other differences. And the point is, so I think one one confusion that people sometimes have is uh, it's true, right? It's confusing like outbreak investigation with contact tracing to cut transmission chains. Yes. So for example, it's true that the uh, outbreak investigation and identifying transmission chains can be done quite effectively sometimes. So for example, if you look at someplace like New Zealand, they know for a very high fraction of cases where they got it from. Yes. But that is not the same thing as stopping transmission with contact tracing. Correct. Uh, to stop trans transmission with contact tracing, you have to identify the case before they transmit to somebody else, which is actually a completely different problem. And so, so to emphasize how different they are, uh, let's consider the following. Imagine like, so the serial interval, like the amount of time that, you know, between, you know, when I get symptoms and the person I get it to give symptoms, right? So for SARS-CoV-2, this is a very short interval. It can sometimes even negative. Sometimes I even get symptoms after the person I gave it to. Right. Okay? Now, if, if the serial interval is long, that makes one of these things easier, but the other more difficult. It makes contact tracing to stop transmission easier, but it makes outbreak investigation harder. Yes. If yes. the serial interval is very short, it makes outbreak investigation easy because you can, it's easier to identify who got it from who because there's this greater coincidence in the symptoms, but it makes it much harder to stop transmission. Yeah. And so with SARS-CoV-2, we have this extremely short serial interval, often a negative interval. And so it's true that people often can reconstruct, at least in these countries where they're putting a ton of resources into doing this for a small number of cases, they can reconstruct who gave it to who. But that's actually not evidence at all that contact tracing is effective at stopping transmission, oh, which is a completely a different problem. To such do that, you have to identify the cases so quickly that you have them isolate or somehow change behavior before they transmit to somebody else. And that's the, so that when I say like nobody's sharing data on whether this is working, that's the, that's the data that's we the don't have, and don't have data yeah. showing that contacts are that in significant numbers. People are being found through out of household tracing before they actually give it to the next generation of infections. And right, and so there's this. It, there's not a great plausibility argument for this. Being able to track transmission retro, retrospectively is is not a substitute. And look, in the spring, it's, it seemed like, yes, we should try this along with everything else. But um, I, I think it, it certainly, I don't see why there was a reason to believe that this could control the, the, control the pandemic. And I don't know that there's any, if you look at the record, I don't think that in early March, there were a lot of people that actually believed this. That's well put. Um... I guess uh, our time is up, and I and and I didn't budget extra time. I should have budgeted ninety minutes. Um, the 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 last, uh, you know, I guess we'll have to we'll have to talk more later. I guess I'll just leave the listeners with a couple thoughts. One, um, I think it'll be interesting to probe a little bit in the future on the distant the difference between um, actual interventions by governments and and news stories and what they do to the voluntary behavior. Because I I I really wonder what was the added you know delta from the actual intervention at the government level versus you know when you when you pump the news out that this is going to flatten everything you're going to sure, you're right. going to right you're going to lock people up whether or not you lock them up or not they're locked up because they got the when I'm scared shitless I'm going to be in my house I'm not going anywhere yeah. um right and so that so that's one question I have and then and then the other point I wanted to make is um 
uh, you know, the, the way you've thought about and articulated many of these things is incredibly thoughtful to me. It resonates with a lot of the things I've thought about. It's also just proof that somebody with a completely different background, um, committed to sort of rigorous thinking, um, can really uh, say things and interest the thoughts of people um, who do do it and approach different backgrounds. And that's why I, I keep saying this this COVID, COVID panel, you've got to get people who think differently, who have different backgrounds and different ways of thinking, um, who are yeah. not susceptible to the Twitter echo chamber, who are more willing to talk, let people say what they say and not be as much influenced by it. And, and, and so I th- always think you're a great person for that. So thanks, uh, Dr. Pegden. Thanks so much for doing this. Really well, enjoyed the discussion. This is great fun. Yeah, it's great fun. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.